Welcome to Modern Food Thinking. This is your host, Chef Jerome Picca, along with co-host Rachel Lucas, owner of Fueling Strong. This show is brought to you by Spazia Rosso Interior Design, and here we present to you our unique perspectives on food as it relates to health and wellness. Welcome to this episode of Modern Food Thinking titled Food Allergies. I may be crazy, but I ain't nuts. Food allergies seem to be very much on the rise, and I am not sure why. Before we dive into this discussion, I remind our listeners that we are not offering medical advice or advocating a particular manner of medical treatment. Always consult with your doctor before making any changes to your health care and understand the science behind your treatments. We are just two professionals having a nice little chat about ah, excuse me, allergies. <laughs> Rachel, would you like to start our discussion due to your personal experiences? Yes, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. Let me start by talking about my history with food allergies and sensitivities. I first got diagnosed with food allergies in 2003. I was 14 years old, which is pretty late uh, for the onset of food allergies. It started as an allergic response actually to a plum. While I was in the car with my mom, we were stuck in traffic It was actually quite a terrifying experience for both of us. Uh, There wasn't much we could do. I started realizing that I was having those similar feelings, which was an itchy throat, most notably, and a little bit of difficulty breathing uh, with a handful of other things. So we went to an allergist who did a scratch test. Uh, To anyone who isn't familiar with this, it's a process where they take up to 50 substances at once and prick your skin with them, either on your forearms or upper back. And then they wait and watch to see what happens to all of those spots. If you have an allergy, the spots turn into something similar to a bug bite. And I can tell you for me personally, this was one of the single worst experiences of my life. My mom and I to this day will still joke about it saying the only thing I didn't react to was the control spot. Um, I was told I had allergies to soy, peanuts, tree nuts, stone fruits, seasonal allergies that came with something called oral allergy syndrome, which explained my reaction to that plum. And we were shocked. No one in my family, immediate or extended, had a single food allergy. Now let's fast forward to 2012, about nine years later. This was when my experience with food sensitivities started. I had my list of allergies, easy enough to avoid, sort of. But now I was struggling with some other symptoms, brain fog, skin rashes, chronic fatigue, chronic fevers, headaches, digestive distress, and some breathing issues, all of that which was really affecting my everyday life. I visited numerous doctors who all told me nothing was wrong. It felt hopeless until I stumbled upon the idea of an elimination diet. I started this elimination diet thinking I had nothing to lose. I already didn't feel great. And uh, I excluded dairy, gluten, grains of all types, legumes, sugar in all of its forms. And this is basically the Whole30, which our listeners have heard me reference before. And after about two weeks of that elimination diet, I realized this must be how normal people feel. So I tell you all of this um, to sort of explain where I'm coming from as we have this discussion. It's coming from this personal experience matched with my education as a nutrition coach. And Jerome, before I turn it over to you, I want to get into a little bit of science here with the difference between food allergies and food intolerances or sensitivities. I'm going to use the word intolerances or sensitivities interchangeably here. All right, so a little a little bit of science. According to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, 
An allergic reaction occurs when the immune system overreacts to a harmless substance known as an allergen. The immune system protects the body from infections, viruses, and diseases. And in some people, substances such as pollen, certain foods, latex, mold, pet dander, dust mites, um, are allergens that trigger the production of antibodies called immunoglobin E, IEG. These antibodies travel to cells that release chemicals causing symptoms most often in the nose, lungs, throat, sinuses, or ears, or on the skin, and that's that typical allergic response. Uh, along with these allergens, we have something called anaphylaxis. This is a serious allergic reaction involving multiple parts of the body. Uh, the most notable symptom is it makes it difficult to breathe. And this is a life-threatening reaction. So anyone who suspects they have food allergies should be carrying EpiPens, which is um, kind of the instant treatment for that anaphylactic reaction. And so now the other side of this is our food intolerance or food sensitivities. This response generally takes place in the digestive tract. It occurs when you're unable to properly break down the food. This could be due to enzyme deficiencies, sensitivities to the food additives, or reactions to naturally occurring chemicals in food. And often with food intolerances, people can eat small amounts of the food without it causing much problem. Rachel, I'm so sorry to hear about what you went through, but it sounds like you are in a comfortable place with your food allergy management. And I have to say that food allergies are serious business. Food and Drug Administration estimated in 2017 that approximately 11 million citizens in the U.S. suffer from some form of food allergy. However, that number may be grossly underestimated. I remember when I was starting out in this business and the only food-related allergies I had heard of were shellfish and gluten. I did not know what gluten was at the age of 15, but I clearly remember that first restaurant I worked in and the day one of the uh, waitstaff rushed into the kitchen to say she had, uh, she had a customer who had a gluten allergy. I was just a 15-year-old humble dishwasher at the time, but I was paying attention what I saw were the chefs scrambling madly to assemble a dish that had no gluten. It was so uncommon 45 years ago that it's hard to imagine today any chefs not having a repertoire of gluten-free dishes in their arsenal. We are actually required by law as chefs to have a certificate in allergen awareness, and we have to keep it posted publicly, and that includes restaurant managers, and we must renew our certification every five years. So prior, prior to closing my restaurant due to the pandemic, I had customers with all sorts of allergies, such as gluten, dairy, soy, sesame, true nuts and tree nuts, onions, garlic, citric acid, strawberries, honey, apples, pears, certain dried fruits and green tea. And there are quite a few others, but I, I don't need to go on. It was occasionally a challenge, but as a plant-based eatery, I planned for almost every contingency. But still, for years, I'd wondered why the change in allergy and food sensitivity seemed to be rising and why it was happening so quickly. I mean, I had my own theories and I did quite a lot of research. But Rachel, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. The research out there on why is so controversial. And the truth is, no one really knows what's causing this rise in allergies and sensitivities. There are some theories, though. Uh, in 1989, epidemiologist David Strachan came up with the hygiene hypothesis, stating that children with older siblings are less likely to get some common allergens like hay fever, eczema, or other allergies. 
Uh, he wrote over the past century, declining family sizes, improvements in household amenities and higher standards of personal cleanliness have reduced the opportunity for cross infection in young families. Unfortunately, this has basically been discredited. Next up, we have Graham Rook, a professor of medical microbiology at the University College London. He states it has more to do with the integrity of our micro of our gut microbiome. Humans microbiota, the microorganisms of a particular habitat, are slowly changing. Our modern homes, with their biocide treated timber and plasterboards, have microbiota that bear no relation to that of the outside world in which we've evolved. We are therefore meeting fewer particles that help our immune system respond to foreign substances. This may also be why, for example, there is good evidence that the more antibiotics someone is given as a child, the more likely they are to have food allergies. Uh, the antibiotics kill all the bacteria, including the healthy bacteria that are in our gut. And the last thing I want to talk about here is something called leaky gut syndrome. Now, I'll start by saying this is not a medically recognized condition by most conventional doctors. You will mainly hear this term being used by holistic nutritionists or functional medical practitioners. As more research comes out, though, more mainstream doctors are understanding le the legitimacy of this syndrome. Leaky gut or intestinal hyperpermeability is a condition that occurs when the tight junctions of the small intestinal wall become loose, allowing harmful substances to enter the bloodstream. And now a quick note here, nothing in our small intestine should be able to leak out. So if you're thinking, well, I only eat healthy food or what sort of harmful things, um, anything that goes from your small intestine out into the rest of your body is perceived by your body as harmful. So the causes of leaky gut can be numerous, such as high sugar diets, or more generally the standard American diet, chronic stress, alcohol consumption, overgrowth of bad bacteria in the gut or undergrowth of good bacteria in the gut. Uh, some symptoms of this condition can include chronic diarrhea, constipation, bloating, fatigue, headaches, difficulty concentrating, skin problems like acne, rashes, or eczema, joint pain, chronic inflammation, and most notably and most relevant to our discussion here is allergies. The idea with allergies in relation to leaky gut is that the small particles of food that have leaked through the small intestine into the bloodstream, those particles aren't supposed to be there. So the body attacks, creating an allergic response when that food is introduced into the system again. Uh, food allergies or sensitivities related to leaky gut can often be tolerated again once the gut is healed. Rachel, those are great talking points, and I can definitely add to those points regarding the research uh, and the work done by Dr. Charles May starting in 1972. This was only a few short years before I started my apprenticeship in culinary arts, which makes the timing somewhat extraordinary for me. Dr. May and his colleagues published many articles on food allergen testing between 1972 and 1986. This includes double-blind studies and diagnostic testing of food extracts on skin surface, similar to what you had to go through, Rachel, when you were younger. His work gave rise to the body of study on food allergies researchers use today. I will also add Alan Bach and Hugh Sampson to the list of researchers you mentioned. Their work led to the development of the double-blind placebo-controlled food challenge. 
and for the most part did away with tests such as the radio allerger, uh, the radio allerger sorbet test developed in 1967, uh, scratch test, intradermal test, this similar again, what, what you went through, Rachel, uh, the immunoglobulin E marker, the leukocytotoxic testing, and, and other tests. Currently, it seems that the recombinant molecular allergen testing and specific ways of eliciting an oral hypersensitivity as described by Eric Fouche are currently being explored. And these are much less stressful than the skin scratch test you had to go through, Rachel. And frankly, the procedure that you went through really sounds awful. I very much like your point, however, regarding the gut microbiome and the effect our changing inside environment has on this. It supports a theory I had been incubating for so many years, and that is the changing environment of the outside world, namely the growing environment of the foods we grow. This is specific to my experiences as a chef. What I'm referring to are the increased concentrations of pesticides, insecticides, fungicides, fertilizers in growing soil for large-scale food plant operations. I feel the research has to follow a bottom-up approach with regards to the sourcing of our food. And for example, take a look at one cited source, and that is E. Heffler and colleagues in Volume 17 of the Journal of Investigational Allergology and Clinical Immunology, published in 2007. The article is quite enlightening and is uh, titled Anaphylaxis After Eating Pizza Containing Buckwheat as the Hidden Food Allergen. Quite a mouthful, but not one that I would like to take a bite of. Another great read is an article published by Pedro Alvarez and Joyce Boy in 2011 titled Food Production and Processing Considerations of Allergenic Food Ingredients. You can find this in the Journal of Allergy publication. You can find it online. I've talked about this previously and how it affects other biological processes. In this case, I'll bring it back to food allergens and gut microbiota. I cannot stress strongly enough to your point, Rachel, how important it is to maintain a strong gut microenvironment for overall health. And what does this mean as we talk about gut flora, microbiome, and other terms related to intestinal health? Well, it basically means eating foods that are nutritionally sound in order to keep the balance of gut bacteria heavily in favor of the good versus the bad. When there's an imbalance due to poor eating habits, bad bacteria can easily overwhelm the good bacteria Getting back to your point, Rachel, it can not only overwhelm many of your physiological functions, it can invade and multiply in the folds of the intestinal wall. The bacteria can multiply and eventually break through the gastrointestinal tract, as Rachel was describing. So for our listeners in this episode, let me get back to food allergies and steer away from leaky gut, IBS, and other symptoms of poor diet for now, though we will probably revisit this in greater detail in a future episode. So what options are available for people with food allergies, and how do you know if you have one? A little personal side note I'm going to add in here is that when I was still training to be a chef, I tried my first avocado and got violently sick. I can still remember the feeling today, and for years I I thought I was allergic to avocados. It took me a long time to build up the courage to try them again, albeit in small amounts, and it turned out that I was never allergic to them. I was simply feeling ill over something else entirely, maybe the flu, who knows. I don't even know to this day, but I do love avocados and I eat them quite regularly. Jerome, I can't imagine life without avocados. What a sad coincidence. Um, 
Okay, so I think the important point here is being able to identify a food allergy. The most obvious and most well-known symptoms of allergies is that itchy throat and difficulty breathing. This is dangerous to my earlier point and are the precursors to an anaphylactic reaction, which needs to be treated immediately by a medical professional. But there are lots of other things that could be going on to indicate an allergic response. Let me share a few less known allergic symptoms. Increased pulse is one, tiredness after eating, skin rashes, bloating, and digestive distress. Now, I know I'm missing some points here, but these are a few that I've experienced personally that took me a long time to understand where they were coming from. As far as what we do about allergies, the easiest thing is to avoid the foods you're allergic to. The good news is a lot of young kids with allergies tend to outgrow them. Unfortunately, this is much less common with adult onset food allergies. Now, there is a lot of research going on about cures for food allergies. It's incredibly challenging because you basically have to retrain your immune system, which is no small feat. Now, some options out there to treat food allergies. One is oral immunotherapy. This is where under medical supervision, you dose small amounts of the allergen, trying to desensitize the patient, eventually reaching a target dose. And you maintain that potentially indefinitely. For some people, uh, that dosing works and they're able to stop that maintenance dose. Another one is sublingual immunotherapy. This is the same as the oral immunotherapy, but now we're placing that substance under the tongue, letting it hit our system that way, and then swallowing whatever's left over. The next one that I'm going to talk about is the newest one. And this is, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this word. And it's, and the, the worst part is, sorry, guys, I, I Googled how to pronounce this word before because I knew I couldn't pronounce it. And I'm going to stumble over again. Epitin- oh, my gosh, I can't I do got, it. I got All you, right. Rachel. Epicutaneous. Thank you. Epicutaneous immunotherapy, which is where we place a patch on the skin. Think almost like a nicotine patch. But now we're doing that with the dosing of our food substance. So there are a handful more options out there like modifying the way you eat a food allergen. Uh, Sometimes cooking something can break down the protein that you're allergic to. You can tolerate it that way. Sometimes there's some research going on also about modifying the actual food to have less of the common allergen protein. Um, And the last thing here, I just want to quickly say that food allergies can be life-threatening. And if you think you might have one, you should see a medical professional immediately so that you can be tested and if needed, prescribed an EpiPen to have on hand at all times. I've been carrying one with me since 2004 and I'm thankful that I've never had to use it. All right. Thanks, Rachel. Nice job. Uh, This is great information for our listeners and speaks directly to the advances in uh, food allergen testing. The EpiPen has been a literal lifesaver for so many people with food allergies. So going back to my earlier points on food origin, I'm going to jump briefly into primary food processing, which is a real term. Uh, I'll refer again to Pedro Alvarez and Joyce Boy as they describe the cross-contamination and undeclared ingredients that can be found in processed foods. They point out the current standards adopted by the World Health Organization for International Trade, which are the guidelines set for the Codex General Standard for the Labeling of Prepackaged Foods. 
This applies only to prepackaged foods, which is great if you're consuming that stuff, but that is definitely not what you and I, Rachel, advocate for our listeners. It seems to me that the research into this primary food sourcing definitely does not go far enough. This particular research is targeting harvested and ready-to-use ingredients, and I believe the research really has to start with the soil and water, as I said before. So the research into primary food sources certainly takes into account harvesting, cleaning, sorting, grading, and labeling. But my issue is with origin sourcing. And what I mean by this goes straight back to my earlier point regarding the use of soil treatments and the unknown effects of, on plant and animal tissue. Ultimately, this must have an impact on accelerated widespread allergy issues. Absolutely. I don't think it's a coincidence that food allergies have been on the rise since our food industry has started mass production. Uh, a funny anecdote here, I have a soy allergy and I was working with a holistic doctor for some time who was doing some very unique testing on me. And one of the things he said is that he could tell I was eating a diet high in chicken meat from chickens who were fed a diet high in soy. Now, chickens are not meant to eat a diet high in soy. And I thought it was fascinating that he could tell that from what was going on in my system. And that's exactly what I'm referring to, Rachel. And what happened to you is far too common. Folks, I can tell you that there are many alternatives for the foods you may be allergic to. In a previous episode on dairy, we talked about alternatives to cow's milk, such as coconut, soy, and nut milks. But for this episode, those alternatives may be problematic for some listeners. I would recommend a gluten-free oat milk as a su safe substitute for cow's milk. And Rachel, you might have an opinion on this, but I will offer a few alternatives to other foods from a chef's perspective. For gluten, you can find gluten-free flour alternatives in practically any grocery store. These are plant-based flours high in starch and fiber, so please read the ingredients label before you purchase. Egg substitutes such as applesauce or mashed banana in quick breads works well, or even egg replacement, which again can be found in the baking section of most grocery stores. Bloom chia seed and flaxseed can be used as a great binder to make crackers. No flour is needed. If you have a shellfish allergy and, not, and are not interested in whole fish, particularly top feeders like salmon, tuna, shark, or swordfish, I would recommend incorporating more sea plants into your daily food intake as a great source of omega-3 fatty acids, calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, and selenium. If you're allergic to peanut butter, try a toasted sunflower seed butter instead. Rachel, you want to jump in with a few of your favorite recommendations? You covered a lot of them. Uh, the good news here, well, I don't know if this is good news, or not, but specialty diets and food allergies and sensitivities are really popular now. Uh, you hear about them all the time. They're, they're becoming a lot more mainstream. So in my experience, you can find something out there to fit in almost any diet. Uh, our listeners might be sick of hearing me say this, and I'm sure anyone with food allergies is used to this, but read your labels. Companies can change ingredients without informing consumers. So if you have widespread allergies and you're used to buying a certain product, always double check that ingredient list so you know exactly what you're consuming. But back to sub substitutions, um, to your point, Jerome, sunflower seed butter, awesome substitute for peanut butter or other nut butters. I use coconut milk as a dairy substitute. I actually use a lot of coconut in general, which a little note on coconut, it is commonly labeled as a tree nut which um, is actually not true 
at all. It is not a tree nut. It's a fruit or a seed. But so, so dig into that. You can have an allergy to coconut, but it is separate from tree nut allergies. Uh, I do not have a gluten allergy, but I do follow a gluten-free diet for other health reasons. I am not a fan of commercially made gluten-free substitutions. I think that they're often detrimental to our health. They're made with tons of starches, to your point, Jerome. I use spaghetti squash as a noodle replacement. I use lettuce wraps as a bread replacement. And in closing, if you do struggle with multiple food allergies, making your own food or again, eating a a whole food diet will always be the easiest way for you to avoid your allergens because then you don't have a nutrition label to check and double check and triple check. And companies try to put cross-contamination warnings on those labels, but it happens daily that companies need to issue recalls because some sort of cross-contamination happened that they weren't able to report on the actual food label. Yeah, so I'm just going to clarify a little bit on what you brought up, Rachel, regarding the coconut. And it's not a uh, a, a tree nut or even a true nut. So, so uh, true uh, true nuts as opposed to tree nuts. Tree nuts are are seeds that are surrounded by a soft outer coating and enclosed within a hard outer shell. And some examples of and these are called droops, by the way, folks. So uh, other examples of droops uh, would be pecans, walnuts pears, peaches, plums, uh, dates, you'd be surprised at, at what botanically is classified as, as a droop. And they all fall into that same category as that tree nut too. Uh, but the, anyway, there you have it, folks. Hopefully the, that we have provided you with useful information and helpful tips. And we advise you to work closely with your health practitioner to stay safe regarding food allergies. We want to thank you for listening to this episode of Modern Food Thinking with Chef Jerome Pekka and Rachel Lucas, owner of Fueling Strong, and edited by Jeremy Nessel. Our next episode will air in two weeks. Please join us then. You can listen to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, through the free app for iOS and Android, or wherever you get your podcasts. To sign up for Rachel's private coaching sessions, visit her website at fueling-strong.com. To sign up for private group or general cooking classes with me, visit chef-jerome.com. This is Jerome Picka. And this is Rachel Lucas. From both of us, we hope you stay well, eat well, and be well. <laughs>